Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now here are your hosts, Nick and Jake. Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Mick. Welcome back to the RayWendlick.com podcast. For this penultimate episode of the season, I'm joined by my esteemed colleague, Jake Gunderson, as well as returning panellist and video team member, Caroline Begby. Now, just like with your previous appearance, Caroline, you're up first. Your 20 minutes have begun. What would you like to talk about? Well, this time I'm going to talk about playgrounds. Ever since Swift came out, we've had playgrounds for about almost two years. And until recently... I've been using playgrounds in the same way that they were first introduced. So like I type in code and I get interactive results and it's great. I love experimenting in playgrounds. And I really think that Swift has succeeded as well as it has due to this live coding in playgrounds so that you can experiment with things like generics, which would be really hard to go through in the simulator and experiment by changing values a lot. Uh, Lately, I've been coming across all these fantastic playgrounds, and I suddenly realized that there's a whole lot more to playgrounds than I realized there was. So I started investigating. One of the playgrounds I came across very recently was a metal playground. I'm learning metal at the moment. And it was by Jacob Bandis-Stork, and it was an interactive playground. Xcode 7.3 has just introduced interactive playgrounds, so you can click on the fractal. But one of the things that leapt out at me of this, this playground was how well it was presented with all the rich text. And I know rich text has been around a long time, but I haven't really used it for myself. And I suddenly realized that I could make my playgrounds look really good. I don't know if you've done too much with creating playgrounds and doing rich text. Well, is this the stuff that you write in Markdown and then you can kind of flip the mode uh, in the viewer and it will then render it, yeah? You render it, you create, uh, you put asterisks around words for italics and double asterisks for bold. Yes, so you can do um, markup and Apple has this custom markup format. Most of it's just general markup but there's uh, a custom markup as well. One of the nice things that you can do in it is like on our Ray Wenderlich pages, there's a notes section where you can highlight things and you can do these custom callouts within this rich text with a nice colored vertical line and indented text. There's three built-in ones, but you can also do your own, you can say, try this with a nice turquoise blue line. And if you use these custom callouts, they, they really make things stand out in, in the page and you can make the page look really good. So as well as doing all your interactive code, you can create blocks of text with instruction. It, you can make your playgrounds look really good. I mean, I mean that, that sounds really good, but just before you go on any further, when you uh, suggested this topic to us when we were doing the planning for this episode, I was quite uh, intrigued because it's somewhat of an oversight that playgrounds are a huge feature that was delivered as part of you know the introduction to Swift as you say 2 years ago now and we've never really spoke about them on the podcast we use them on the site we've got tutorials that are exclusively playgrounds the swift apprentice book uh, uses playgrounds and we also used playgrounds uh, throughout some of the interactive tutorials that are that we devcon so we have made good use of them since their introduction but it's not something we've spoke about on the podcast just before you kind of get into any of the stuff that came out 
more recently, uh, I just wanted to take it right back and, and ask if you've always used playgrounds. Are they something that you've picked up since the introduction of Swift? Ever since uh, Swift, yes, I've been using playgrounds. And I think most people have. But I have only just been typing in code. I haven't done any in, uh, any building up of views and using the XE playground module. I've just typed in code and uh, debugged in real time and I think they're great and for doing something like uh, core graphics building up an image in core graphics where you can bring out an image and show the image in your playground and as you're writing the code the image will update that's that's absolutely great but there's a, a lot more to playgrounds than just that and I don't think that people are using them very extensively I think most people just use them the same way as I do one of the things I've noticed when I when the playgrounds first came out, I was I was really excited. I I I like that kind of live um, feedback that you get from playgrounds. Python is one of my favorite languages to play with because you can build things up in the in the REPL and kind of see how they see how they act. I find that a lot more fun, especially when I'm trying to get into something that I don't I'm not already familiar with. I'm trying to figure something out. I find it a lot more satisfying to just kind of you build your functions up one little piece at a time and you can kind of get this immediate feedback. So I I was really excited about playgrounds, but early on as I tried to use them just, you know, right after they came out, I noticed that there's a lot of limitations and obviously with the new 7.3, the interaction was a huge one because if if you can't interact, if you can't click on things, you're limited to what you can do uh, in terms of really seeing how your application is responding. And I think another limitation, or, and I don't know if this was always a limitation or if I just couldn't figure it out, but I think they've solved this as well, was kind of like networking and asynchronous operations. I think early on those were difficult to do in Playgrounds, but it seems like I've seen stuff online where that's been resolved. Can you speak a little bit to that, Caroline? Or uh, Yes, I think that was resolved fairly early on. Uh, XC Playground has changed a lot. Uh, they've changed the format of it. I think it was in 9.1 they changed the format. For asynchronous, you now do a XE playground page dot current page dot needs indefinite execution. So you set needs indefinite execution to true and anything that's downloading will keep downloading. And then if you need to finish the execution, you can just instruct the, the playground to stop with the finish execution method. So I think that's all sorted out. Like you, Jake, I had some, some issues when I first picked up playgrounds when they when they first came out and, and it almost put me off i mean i'm not somebody that has used them perhaps to the extent that i should have and, and that caroline sounds like she is because sort of when they were first introduced they didn't seem to work as well for me as they did in all the demos that apple gave at wwdc i couldn't even get the balloons playground to run to start with right exactly and then you'd end up with things like seg faults or code just wouldn't execute or you get these really cryptic uh, compiler messages that seemed even more cryptic than the ones we were getting in uh, Xcode when we were just writing code as we would normally. And because I was already in that process of making a change to code, compiling, running it in a simulator, stopping it, going back, changing something else, rinse and repeat, it was already in that cycle. That was was very much the norm. It was very easy to discount uh, playgrounds once once I'd run into all those issues and just go back to what I was familiar with. So what I'm hoping for, because we've not covered Playgrounds before and because uh, obviously they have come on leaps and bounds within the last couple of years and you know they are still improving, as you said, with 7.3, which has just come out. We've got uh, interactivity, which is brand new and, and, a, and a key feature that I'm hoping you're going to be able to sell them to me and any listeners that are in the same position as me that may have tried them and because they ran into all these issues. 
um, just discounted them and, and went back to the old way of working? I'm not going to say they're perfect because uh, if you're working with like uh, lots of views and subviews and adding views and then expecting to interact with them in a live playground, that's probably not going to happen because your code is being interpreted. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes. It, it can be slow. One of the great things is once you've done your bit of code and you're happy with it, you can extract that code from the playground and put it into an auxiliary source file and put that in the sources folder of the playground and then that will be compiled behind the scenes so it's that's not being interactively compiled so uh, the playground will run a lot quicker because it only has to interact with what's in the playground itself and it can just use the compiled code behind the scenes that's a great tip if you're you know if your playground's running really slowly then put it in an auxiliary source file with uh, playgrounds, you can split them up into pages, which are like mini playgrounds inside the playground. And each page can have its own auxiliary source file. If you're working on different versions of an algorithm, for example, you could create auxiliary source files and put them in the pages source file. Or you could also have source files that are relevant for the entire playground as well. So you can split them out either into pages or you can have it for the whole playground. And that certainly speeds things up. Can you also bundle other types of assets inside a playground? Can we put images and videos and that kind of things in there? Yes, you've got a sources folder and you've got a resources folder. So the sources is for Swift files where you can put functions and classes. You can't put top level commands in them, just functions and classes. And you can have a resources folder where you put your images and your files as well. Yes, and the, the nice thing about playgrounds is that they are complete. So when you give somebody a playground, you know that you're giving everything to them and they know that when they open it, it's immediately going to run on their system rather than having to open a project and then go off and run it on the simulator. What about um, security? So are these things sandboxed or do they have access to, to like the, the host file system and, and whatnot? They are sandboxed. Uh, com they're completely sandboxed, except for when they save out files. You can actually use the XC Playground module to save data outside to a file. And you, you save that, anything you need, like if you're working on a, creating an image and you want to save that image to a file, you can create, save that file in the XC Playground shared data directory URL. The thing to remember with that is that you have to create the directory yourself. So you go into your documents folder and you create a folder called shared playground data and all the playgrounds will save into that one folder. So apart from that instance, that it's all sandboxed and it's sandboxed between pages as well inside the playground. Okay, and you can read and write to that shared directory, can you, on disk? Yes. Just right? oh, okay. Yes. Okay, cool. I mean, what sort of documentation does Apple have for playgrounds? Is all this stuff easy to find because it seems a bit of an unusual thing that you would need to manually create a folder yes i think i probably found that on stack overflow when i was okay. uh, going through it and wondering why my image didn't save the rich text documentation is very good and it's it's pretty good um there is a book by erica sadoon as well who who wrote um about playgrounds she's been following playgrounds ever since the beginning and uh, she writes wonderful stuff on her blog as well so what kind of stuff have you been doing then? Like most recently, what have you used the playground for? I was actually having fun creating a custom control in a framework, which I hadn't 
really done much with frameworks and I thought, well, I need this custom control and I'd really like it to be a framework. So I built up this custom control in the playground. Well, first of all, I created a framework project and then I created a playground within this framework project and built up all my views in the playground. As each bit worked, I would offload it to an auxiliary source file. When it all worked in the playground, I copied those auxiliary source files back in, well, into the framework project and I built the framework. And then within the same framework project, I created a new playground and I was actually able to test the framework in that playground. Within the one framework project, I had a, a playground for building it and a playground for testing it as well. So that when I, I knew that when I used that framework in other projects, because I'd already tested it in the playground, it would work probably. I mean, that sounds really cool and it sounds a very different sort of process, development process to what we're used to. It sounds much quicker because obviously a lot of this stuff, as you say, once you've once you've ironed something out, you can move it to this auxiliary uh, source files, which I assume are compiled once and then cached in some way, so that so that only what's left in the playground is being interpreted in real time. Uh, and it sounds yes. like it's it's a very quick development cycle there. Yes. Well, uh, it you, depends. You yes. sound a little bit on <laughs> chart. Oh, it's funny because I was going to ask you about limitations, so that might be a nice segue into uh, into talking about limitations then. Well, if you do, I did find that I had to restart Xcode a few times because the the playground wouldn't update when when you're working with lots of subviews. It 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 does slow down a lot, and I sometimes I would have to restart Xcode, and I'd also have to stop and restart the playground. At the bottom, there's a little play button where you can stop the playground and restart it. So I'd have to do that a few times before it would actually take my changes and sometimes I'd done a change and I wasn't sure if it was me that had done the change wrong or whether the playground just hadn't updated or not so that could be a little frustrating. I used to I would normally create a custom control using live rendering which I think you spoke about a few weeks ago and so if I was creating it in code I would put it on the storyboard and create the code and watch it live render in the storyboard but I actually think that now we've got the interactive bit where you can actually test your buttons work working I think that playgrounds might be an improvement on doing it in the storyboard because live rendering also has its problems as well when you get too complicated so how does the um, interactivity work I haven't actually played with this yet do you just get the same callbacks in code that you'd normally get like the touches moved or what whatever or is, is there something special you have to do now you get touches moved. You, you, well, you create a, a view subclass or just create a view. In fact, you say view equals UI view. And then you can add a gesture recognizer onto it. And because you need to have a callback, you have to have that callback method in a an NS object class. So you'd all, in your playground, you'd create a class, maybe you'd call it responder, and it would inherit from NS object and in there you'd have your gesture recognizer method which you can then use as your selector as the gestures target but if you subclass the UI view you can just use touches began and it and it works. We've talked a few times about building up views and that seems to be kind of the the most common use case for you, Caroline? Yes, I don't, I don't think that building up views would be the most common use case. I think that the most common use case would be uh, something like I've been working on a, a Sudoku solver, solver, which is nothing to do with views. And that's a great thing to do in the playground because you're doing lots of logic and not working with views. And I think that's the best way to use a playground, to be honest, is to do algorithmic type stuff. 
One thing that's really quite nice that I don't know that I'll ever do is the custom quick look. Uh, at the moment, you can press the I next to a variable and get a quick look result. So if you're pressing and if you've got an image there, you can click on the I and see the image in a little window underneath your code. And you can also make your own custom quick looks. You can uh, conform to the custom playground quick lookable protocol and create a custom playground quick look method. And in that method, you can take all your data and stick it into some kind of view and return a view or a float or a color. And that turns into the quick look for your particular class or variable. And that's that's pretty cool. If you're so, if you're making playgrounds for the public use, I think that that would be great for conveying information in a nice format. But I'm not sure if I'd do it for myself. But I, that is something I might do. For like for a Sudoku solver, you could have the instead of showing an, a two-dimensional array that I don't think shows properly in the quick look anyway. You could create a, a visual grid. And that, that's code that lives right in your playground, the custom quick look protocol code? Yes, although I would, as soon as possible, I would move it out to an, an auxiliary source, a Swift file, yes. Is it possible to um, disable the live rendering and then just have it run the code when you are ready? Uh, yes, yes, there's a, there's, a, there's a play, well, as soon as you type, it executes the playground, but you can stop the playground at the bottom. There used to be an option to be able to stop it all the time, but I, th I couldn't find that. Uh, it seems to have gone and just and it's been replaced by this button that you press stop and start. So if you, if you want it not to execute, you can press the stop button and it will immediately stop. And of course, if you're not using the XC Playground Live View itself, then that's, the Playground will render a lot quicker. There's a difference between just using the playground and having it show things like results views uh, as opposed to the XC playground live view which shows in the assistant, the assistant editor so if you turn that off it runs quicker uh, you mentioned before that you know one one of the nice aspects about playgrounds especially now we can put resources and these auxiliary source files in is that when you hand that off you know you can share that with another developer and they have everything they need do they still need Xcode to be able to run a, a playground or does it run independently from Xcode? No, you still need Xcode. And I'm hoping that this WWCDC, it's going to go on the iPad because I think that the playgrounds would be perfect on the iPad. Does that mean that they also need to put Xcode on the, like in order for that to happen? Well, would we need? I think that they could split it out. I don't think they would need to have the full Xcode, but I th they'd have to need to have the full code behind, you know, the interpreting code. Because I don't think anybody really wants to build projects on an iPad, but playgrounds where you can run and test things and learn Swift on the iPad, I think that would be a great asset for Apple. If somebody now is, is really um, interested in learning more about playgrounds, just give me one, one of the best resources that you've come across where they can find out more, and we'll make sure it goes in the show notes. Uh, the WWDC videos, both for 2014 and 2015, there's one for each year. Okay, thanks for that, Caroline. That was really interesting, and I think you've just about persuaded me to give Playgrounds another another chance. Um, now, before we move on to Jake's topic, we're just going to take a short break to hear from the sponsor for this episode. Make your plans now to come to Nashville, Tennessee, and attend the best tech conference being held this year. 
Indie Dev Stock isn't just about learning the latest Apple frameworks or how to program in Swift. Indie Dev Stock is about making connections. Our speakers will share their stories, experiences, and ideas with you. Through their words, you'll gain a better understanding of the challenges indies face and, more importantly, how to overcome them. It doesn't matter if you're currently a successful indie developer, just starting out, or trying to decide if going indie is right for you. We're all in this together. In addition to the inspiration talks, you'll also have an opportunity to attend hands-on tech talks to help level up your skills. During this two-day event, not only will you get to experience Southern hospitality at its finest, but you'll also get to hear some of the best live music around while enjoying all Nashville has to offer. For more information and to buy your ticket, go to www.indiedevstock.com. We hope to see you there. Thanks again to Indie Devstock for sponsoring this episode of the RayWenLit.com podcast. Now, Jake, with a fresh 20 minutes on the clock, the mic is all yours. All right, so I I actually had a little bit of a hard time this week coming up with a topic. Um, we've been doing the podcast for a while, and I think at some point or another, we've talked about everything that I really get excited to, about talking about. So I put a, a call out on Twitter and said, you know, what would you guys like to hear from me? And a bunch of people wrote and said, talk about scene kit we just had a scene kit book come out it's called 3d ios games by tutorials by chris language yeah i've been going through it and i'm familiar with scene kit i really like scene kit and we actually have talked about scene kit once on the podcast before so that's why i didn't think to talk about it but i think because of the because of the book there's some renewed interest so scene kit is a 3d graphics framework that greatly simplifies working with with 3D graphics. So normally when we think about 3D graphics, we think about OpenGL or Metal. And these are very low-level frameworks. OpenGL is a C-level framework. That There's a lot of boilerplate code that you need to write in order to get even simple things to render on screen. Um, and Metal is very similar. It's very unfriendly for beginners to jump in and do, do 3D graphics. It's something that a lot of developers don't ever touch just because of the amount of work you need to do to get to even get simple things working is, is just not worth it. And so SceneKit kind of steps in and solves that problem. SceneKit makes it actually quite easy. So uh, in SceneKit, in you know four or five, six lines of code, you can jump in and you can say create a primitive like a cube or a sphere or a torus, get it on screen, get the lighting set up, and you can be you know looking at, a, at an interactive 3D view of something simple in, in not very much code at all. It really does take a lot of the pain out of of 3D graphics, and so it's it, and it, that's what makes it so great. Really, I just wanted to quickly step through the rendering pipeline just so that people understand some of the basic principles of 3D graphics, and then we can talk a little bit more about specifically about how SceneKit implements these. So, what what the job of the GPU is is to take a set of data that represents kind of a 3D world and to rasterize it or make it a flat 2D view for a given camera point so that you can see it you know, on, on a screen. You provide geometry, which is the all of the shapes in this 3D world. And those shapes are represented by, by lots of 
polygons, and usually that means triangles. And so you, you have a set of three points in space, so we call those vertices. So any given triangle is represented by three points in, in 3D space. That's the geometry. So you can imagine in a 3D game, like uh, if you think about Doom, you know, you've got these, these monsters. Those monsters are represented by thousands of polygons. And so there's a lot of data there. So that's, that's the geometry. What gives the, the individual polygons in space color, um, you can provide color, um, but usually it's done with texturing. So you'll have like, an image file that has basically the, a little triangular section that maps to each triangular section on this very complex 3D model. And so that's, that's texturing. And then, and then you have lighting, um, which is done with all kinds of crazy math. Uh, that represents, you know, you have multiple light sources in this 3D world and you have to calculate, you know, the direction the light's coming from and then the angle of the object the light is reflecting off of and then the angle to the, of the camera to the object. I think you get the picture that, that 3D graphics is actually a quite complex topic. But the beauty of SceneKit is that you don't have to understand all of that stuff. You just say, put a light here in this world, put an object here in this world, put a camera here in this world. And that's there's an object for a camera. There's an object for different kinds of lights. There's a there's an object that represents your geometry. And that makes it really nice. And if you're trying to learn 3D graphics, I actually think starting out with SceneKit is a great way to do it because all of these ideas they all exist in the in the SceneKit framework. And so if you've worked with SceneKit for a little while and you kind of understand how to build a scene in SceneKit, and then you do want to jump into OpenGL or Metal, it's going to make way more sense because you're not affronted with a barrage of of topics that you're unfamiliar with. You're like, why do I need to worry about this? Once you've kind of worked with SceneKit, you kind of understand the, the basic ideas. And, and when you, you know, read something about how to, you know, upload a vertex buffer in OpenGL, you'll be like, oh, this is, you know, this is the geometry part, or this is the texturing part of, of this, of the rendering cycles. Anyway, so that's kind of some of the benefits of SceneKit is it makes it way easier and it makes it way easier to learn what is really a very complex topic. So it's a good way of dipping your toe in and gauging the toe, whatever that uh, common phrase is, in order to sort of um, ease yourself into the world of 3D without having to worry about matrix math and all that kind of crazy stuff that I think just consumes so many people, myself included. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it, it does. It really does turn turn you off. I mean, it, it, I learned it, but I it was very difficult. <laughs> it wasn't fun, so... When you're positioning uh, these things in 3D space, all you have to do is s state the position rather than using matrix maths. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so in 3D space, everything has a has a coordinate ha has a three point coordinate, right? So you have an x, a y, and a z coordinate, and a and a rotation. Yes, yes, rotation and yes. a scale as well. the The size of your world and the size of your objects is completely arbitrary. Uh, which is true of OpenGL. It's also true of SceneKit. You can anything can be at whatever scale you want. So you can decide, you know, your world one one say meter in real life is equivalent to a one point oh point in your space, or it could be equal to a mile. It's whatever you want to define it as. So you mentioned that there's uh, some new stuff that's coming. So SceneKit's been around for for a short while now, but there's some new stuff that's coming iOS nine. So do you want to do you want to give us an insight into some of that? Yes. So the biggest change improvement from iOS 8 to iOS 9. Xcode has a built-in scene editor. Now, we always had a scene viewer in Xcode so that we could open up our 3D scenes and look at them. But in Xcode, 
nine in Xcode seven in iOS nine, we got the ability to manipulate those scenes in Xcode's editor. So now you can jump into Xcode. You now have this editor where you can, you know, grab a cube, drop it into a scene, manipulate all of its properties, position it, rotate it, scale it, and kind of see the results in the editor. Now the rendering in the editor is not exactly the same because it's kind of a simplified version. One thing I haven't mentioned yet about about 3D graphics is materials. Materials is kind of how things look, whether they're shiny, materials control all the color the shininess all of that can be set up in xcode in this new editor you can go into the properties and you can manipulate all these different material properties so that you can get you know something that looks like brick or something that looks like a rubber or something that looks like glass chris language's book goes through all of these properties in and kind of covers all the different things that you can do to manipulate the the materials goes through like, like every option and kind of it just describes what it is and shows you kind of some visual examples. And so all that can be done in Xcode. And that is an amazing feature. And it's I haven't played with scene as much in the last year. And so as I've been going through the book, it really, I've been so pleased with, with that feature. So prior to iOS 9 then, um, you would have to build your entire scene directly in code. Well, in code or in um, Blender or Maya or some other 3D scene editor. And if you're going to do something really complex, um, you presumably are going to have an artist and you will still do that. So that's kind of in general the way 3D games or 3D scenes are created is generally in a third party tool um, that's designed for these kinds of these kinds of things like these these tools you can paint textures onto 3d objects that's something you can't do in xcode's editor um and so if depending on how sophisticated your game is and how sophisticated the art is um in many cases you would still have your artist produce these assets in a 3d authoring tool and then you would import them into xcode and then you could then like composite them together into your scene in Xcode's editor, if that makes sense. Okay, and once you've done that in the Xcode editor, like how would you then get that into your code? Is it saved into a file? Is it like some proprietary format or is it open source format or is it just like an XML file? Or It's it's a .scn file and I think it's an Xcode scene format. I don't think that it's a third party like open source format. So I don't think, I don't think, other, I don't think other programs could open up a .scn file. But yeah, the the scene format for Xcode scene editor is is a .scn, and so you just load that. That's one line of code in in ScenekIt to load a scene into memory, and then you can you can either import the whole scene into a scene object. So in ScenekIt, the main object that kind of controls what you're seeing is a is a scene object. It's scn scene. You can either import the whole scene and just use that scene, or you can import a scene and then you can pull out specific assets by name. So one thing uh, that is true of most 3D graphics structures is that you have a node hierarchy. A 3D object like a cube would be a node. And then sometimes you'll have complex node hierarchy. So you might have a character and his his like arms would be a node and his body would be a separate node, but the body would be the parent node. And so when you move the body the arms would move with it, but they're still separate nodes. So in code, you can go in and you can pull out all these nodes by name, and then you can manipulate them, move them around, import them into into a scene or into a different scene. So that's kind of how you, once you have your kind of scene set up in, in the Xcode scene editor, you can then import it into code and you know stick it into your game. 
You can actually use a playground for doing that as well, but it's quite slow. Yeah, I've only played very limited with scene kit. Um, and this was that was one of my early experiments with playgrounds was to play with scene kits because I was interested in scene kit. Um, and at the time, I was just doing something very simple, like I was just you know rendering a Taurus, and that rendered okay. Um, yes, it's when you add lights and cameras and things, each one has, takes a little while to go through. So when you're just doing a simple scene, it takes quite a long time in the playground, but it can be done. Yeah. One awesome thing that's really fun to do with SceneKit is you can have multiple cameras and you can render those cameras into different views. And so you could have like like a dungeon crawling game. A lot of times you'll have an overhead map. You could use a, a separate camera and have an overhead camera that was like you'd have your main first person view camera, but you could then have an overhead camera that would be kind of showing you your map. So there's cool things you can do with SceneKit that you wouldn't necessarily think. That's some of the fun things you can do with and again, scene kit makes this very easy. I know um, with the sprite kit editor in Xcode, uh, it allows you to do more than just sort of laying out your scene in that you can uh, do animations and you can attach actions to objects and define those actions. Is that the same? Do we get the same sort of functionality with the scene kit editor? Yeah, and that again, that's brand new. So there's a, there is an actions editor. The actions editor is like this visual timeline where you can say put a, like a rotate action in and then you can put a scale action in and you can put them so that they happen at the same time or you can put them back to back so that one happens first and then as soon as that's done, the second one happens. And so, yes, there's an actions editor. And I guess we should mention, so for those that aren't familiar, um, actions are a way in both scene kit and sprite kit. It's not, it's not um, tied to... 3D graphics per se, but it's very useful for game programming. You have these, what you call an action, and it's like a fire and forget. So instead of having to go into like your update render loop and say, figure out what time point you're at and say, okay, what's, what positions should I be at this time? So if you wanted to move, say, uh, think of like a crossy road example, which actually is an example in the book. There's a crossy road style game. If you want to move the crossy road figure from one position to the next, you don't have to go in and say, okay, at this timestamp I should be at X, and at, at the next timestamp I should be at X plus one, and the next, you, you give it an action that says move from here to here in this period of time, and then the action handles all those intermediate time steps uh, for you. You can imagine that makes life a lot easier when you just say move this from here to here, rotate this from this position to this position. And so like say in Xcode now there's this, and we had that, we've had actions as long as we've had scene kit, but this new visual interface for setting up those animations and or actions and chaining them together makes life um, a lot more fun. So, and that's that's kind of a standard tool in other 3D graphics, uh, other 3D game engine tools like Unity. That this is a standard way of of setting up animations and things like that. So, just on that, because um, that was one question that I did want to ask. Now that we've got uh, this interactive scene editor for SceneKit as part of Xcode. Um, putting the performance of the, the 3D engine aside and the features and that kind of stuff, but just looking at the editors available for all these different types of 3D game engines, how does Xcode and, and its interactive scene editor now fare against things like Unreal or Unity? Because they've had these uh, interactive scene editors pretty much since day one. That's, that's always been their approach to building up their worlds. And... Um, so Apple's kind of late to that game. And I was just wondering, with somebody with experience in this domain, like how does it compare? Yeah, so I, I don't, Unreal is not something I'm as familiar with, but I have used Unity at this point a fair amount. 
And so I can I can speak to Unity. Unity is definitely a gaming engine and so unity has been around longer and it's it has a lot more features everything that you'll find in scene kit you will find in unity plus you know a lot more things and so unity is a much more fully featured game editor and unity also will do live interaction so you can actually run your game in the unity editor and then you can inspect your properties um, and it's the same it's the same interface you you've you've got your in Unity, you set up your scene, um, you position things, and then you click run. In that same window, it just starts your game just starts running, and but you still have all your panels with all your properties and stuff. And so you can go in while the game's running, and you can move things around or change how they look or you know whatever you want to do. Um, you can't change your the logic, the code that runs the game live, but you can change all the properties. Um, you can't do that with Scene Kit. The Unity is cross-platform, obviously. Um, Scene Kit is not. But uh, for me, I like Swift and Apple frameworks and Apple code much better than I like working in C Sharp in Unity. And that's partly just from, you know, I've I've been doing it much longer. The The Unity editor is, is all about creating games. And so the, the connection between the code and the component that you're adding to your particular game object is a little more tenuous. Whereas with scene kit, everything that pretty much everything that you, all the properties that you see are connected to like one line of code. So if you go into scene kit and you, you know, change, change something, it's directly connected to a property on that object. That's technically still true in unity, but it's just the relationship is a little bit there's more layers of abstraction between what you're seeing in the editor and the properties and the actual code objects in Unity than in SceneKit. And I like working in SceneKit better. So I don't know if that makes sense. Like SceneKit is closer to the metal a little bit in terms of like the representation of, of the underlying code than Unity is. And obviously in SceneKit, you got to work in Swift or Objective-C um, and like say Unity C-sharp. So if you're already familiar with Apple code, if you're already a Swift or Objective-C programmer and you want to make a 3D game, SceneKit is a very strong candidate for that because you're going to be very familiar. It's going to make sense to you. You're going to be comfortable in Xcode. You're going to have a good experience with SceneKit. It's a very, very good, very powerful framework. And these new features, especially the, the scene editor and things, bring it much closer to having a, the feature set that's kind of competitive with Unity. But if you're brand new to programming in general and you just want to make games, you probably want to look at Unity because it's more fully featured. It's less technical uh, in some ways than, than SceneKit and Objective-C is, so you don't have to worry about as many low-level code concepts when you're working in Unity. You're more kind of thinking about how your game works than how the code works. So that's what I would say. Okay, so just on that, uh, with SceneKit being a uh, uh, very capable 3D game engine, and just to wrap out this segment, if I remember rightly, uh, as part of WWDC, didn't Apple provide an almost fully featured 3D game as some sample code to get people into using SceneKit and the interactive editor? Yeah, there's like an adventure game uh, that's like a guy running around collecting bananas. Um, and that's kind of a full, full-fledged full game. There was a bunch of other samples, too, that weren't fully fleshed-out games, but they had, um, like, a full level built, and you could 
move your character around. There's there's like four or five different sample projects with Scene Kit this year, and every one of them was was really impressive. Very good, like introduction to what the the framework is capable of. Okay, so we'll make sure we get those links to those in the show notes then, because that sound like to be good re- uh, good learning resource. Well, those and obviously Chris's book. Which, uh, not to be biased, but uh, if anybody's wanting to get into Scene Kit, that's the first place you should start. Yeah, the book the book really is great. I, I was so happy as I read it. Because, again, I'm familiar with the framework, and so I didn't go through step-by-step step and, you know, write all the code out. But I'm just kind of skimming through it, like, trying to get a sense of, like, what does this cover? What does it not cover? And it, it, the book is fantastic. It, it's four different games, and all four of them are amazing in how fun and rich they are and i think the first three are only 200 lines of code roughly each and the the crossy road is 400 lines of code the majority of the game is set up in the level builder in the property inspector in the xcode interface and then the game logic is actually quite small and straightforward and so it's it's really impressive the the, what he's done with that book Okay, well, that's where we're going to... I'm going to cut you off there. We'll leave that for this episode and make sure we get all that stuff into the show notes. Uh, thanks for that, Jake. I think it was good to to revisit Scene Kit after such a, a long time, and this definitely sounds like there's been some worthwhile enhancements since iOS 9. Uh, thanks again for joining us for this episode, Caroline. Thanks for having me. If you have any feedback or comments on the podcast, then please do get in contact by a podcast at raywendlick.com. And don't forget to leave your reviews on iTunes because they really do help uh, keep us motivated to keep going with this. Uh, We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you all next time. And that's a wrap. Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWendelk.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.